0: Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you'd like more information on Team Rhino Outdoors, visit www.teamrhinooutdoors.com. My co-hosts tonight are Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. You can find more about Muskie Mayhem Tackle by visiting www.muskiemayhemtackle.com. And our guest tonight is Jim Sarek of the Muskie Hunter TV show. Jim, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? We're doing real good. Happy to have you here. I'm glad to be here.
1: Should be a fun night. Um, Jim brings a lot to the table, and uh, excited to hear what he's got to say.
0: So, Jim, generally we start our guests out, especially if they're first-time first guests, on like a little background history, kind of what got you into Muskies, um, maybe what got you started with the TV show or got you started with the magazine in your case. So if you could, why don't you start out with uh, a little history on yourself?
2: All right. Let's see. How far back do I want to go? Um, I caught my first muskie. Now that I'm counting, on July 3rd, 1976, at 12:10 p.m. Just, just so you know that that was the first one. And so, (laughs) but my, um, so my, you know, I grew up in in you know a south suburb of Chicago. And uh, my parents had a place in northern Wisconsin on the Lac de Flambeau Indian Reservation, which is in Vilas County. It's west of Managua. And that kind of was my home waters where I spent a lot of time in the summer and in the fall, you know, and we fished and uh, we didn't catch a lot you know, and we, my dad loved to musky fish. And so we would do go muskie fishing and walleye fishing and none of that was really happening. And, and, you know, we had friends that we would go to dinner with and, but when it came to sharing fishing information, it's like, nope, not sharing it. And when I was in like, you know, seventh or eighth grade, I picked up a fishing facts magazine. and I read an article. My dad's like, yeah, pick it up. You know, I needed to read, so let's take it and read it. So I picked up the magazine. I read an article. I went on my lake and I tried it it was a pike fishing article and it worked. I'm like, wow. And I read the bass article and it worked. And I'm like, you know, there's something to this kind of educational, you know, thing into it. And uh, so that just kind of got me snowballed into trying to read everything I could about fishing. And for me, musky fishing, although we didn't catch a lot of them, it was just about seeing them. And just, I was, I liked the whole idea of being active, casting, moving from spot to spot, not, sitting in a boat in one spot, waiting for fish to come to you, but hunting them down. It was all great. And, you know, so I kind of, you know, when I ended up catching that first one, uh, I was just kind of hooked after that. And when I was in high school, it was, you know, I I was going on musky trips with my dad. I got my other friends that were into walleye fishing and bass fishing, and they'd come on a musky trip with me and come up North and do that. And I got a couple of them into it. And when I was in college, I got into it as well. And I started fishing tournaments and I, you know, you know, ended up placing in a couple of tournaments. And then I won a tournament in, in college and, uh, you know, musky fishing back then, there weren't a lot of musky tournaments. They were just, you know, a few of them. And I kind of got into it that way. And, you know, I can tell you guys that, and, and that when I was in high school, people say, well, what did you want to do? You know, when I was in high school, you know, I loved watching the TV shows and fishing and, you know, Al Linder was one of my idols and, I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to have a television show and I wanted to have a muskie fishing television show. And and that was kind of something I always wanted to do. So it was kind of a high school on dream to have a show um, doing that. And yeah, I went to college and I did everything, but I was still you know kind of passionate about catching muskies and wanting to have a TV show. That was always kind of the thing I wanted to do. And I was also pretty fortunate in that back then there weren't as many people into muskie fishing. Um, you know, or as much information, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have hardly any books on musky fishing. So, you know, I was fortunate to meet Joe Booker when he was early on in his guide service and Spence Petros when he was with Fishing Packs Magazine. And they both kind of took me under the wing when I was in high school. and And then in college where, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, my dad and I booked Joe as a guide for walleyes and muskies. And then when he would have a spare day, he'd call me when I was in high school and take me musky fishing to go check out a lake. And I went to on bus trips with Spence Petros. And these were guys who were on the kind of the cutting edge of musky fishing knowledge. And so I had their experience plus this ability to kind of fish these clear gin, clear waters in Northern Wisconsin that I was fishing that had a bunch of big muskies on them at the time. And, and it, it was a huge learning thing. And, you know, one thing just snowballed after another for me where I started fishing tournaments and then I won several tournaments and then I had companies approach me. Um, Ranger was my first sponsor and they approached me in college and, and I've been with them for 30 years. And, you know, and, and it just, you know, one thing that I started writing articles when I was in college for fishing facts and then it was, Hey, can you do a seminar? And, and then can you come work at sport shows? And it all from, you know, that all started when I was, Probably a sophomore in college, where all these opportunity doors opened for me, and they just kept going from that, from there, and uh, you know. And then the Muskie Hunter magazine started back in 1989, and I was the, one of the first writers for them. And then a couple of years later, became editor, and and then you know hacking. Ninety-seven. my wife and I bought the magazine, and I remember my wife telling me, she goes, you know, you know a lot about muskies, but what do you really know about running a magazine? And, and we didn't know anything, and so we ended up taking a class from Northwestern University on how to un-magazine production and management, and it all went from there. And we started one of the first muskie websites with a forum. That muskie hunter forum was crazy when it started. There were no login IDs, nothing required. It was just a free-for-all. But it was a really fun exchange of knowledge from people from out east, from Canada, you know, no matter where you were, it was the first opportunity people to exchange musky fishing stuff. And, you know, it was a great opportunity for me to meet people. And I traveled all across the country to fish with some of the writers and learn techniques that were going out east that could be applied in the Midwest and from the Midwest, bring them out east and, you um, You know, that was one real thing I learned with the magazine early on, that a muskie is a muskie is a muskie. And then, you know, as I was doing the magazine, I was doing television segments for Midwest Outdoors. The the opportunity kind of came for me to have the television show. And here I am 14 years later, we're still doing the Muskie Hunter television show. So that may be a long background, but that's kind of, you know, where I've been and, you know, how it all started. I'm kind of pursuing my dream.
1: What are some of the biggest changes you think you've seen in in that many years, Jim? I mean, you know, the sport keeps changing and elevating, and um, it's definitely grown as far as number of people. But I, what what do you think are some of the biggest changes that you've
2: seen? Yeah, you know, there's I've seen a I've seen lots of changes in it. You know, I've seen it kind of you know peaks and valleys. You know, I, I think what I've seen is you know, multiple lakes in different areas. I've seen them in Canada. I've seen them in, you know, Minnesota. I've seen them in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, lakes that kind of get discovered, you know, and my passion when muskie fishing is always about finding new waters. So I always try to be one of the first people there. And I have watched You know, you had most people fishing in the bulk of the anglers fishing in, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota and northwest Ontario. And then all of a sudden that expanded different areas. And then, you know, new lakes get developed. And I've watched lakes get, you know, all of a sudden on the radar screen and everybody rush to them and catch fish like crazy for years. And then these lakes just kind of fall off and become normal musky lakes. Right. And then people kind of dissipate from them. And, and I've watched that happen on lots of lakes. And I have watched it happen on lakes that I was like one of the first people to fish. And it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, when you, you know, fast forward, I mean, I even think about it now when I'm um, fishing the television, filming the television show that there are lakes that I fished 14 years ago, that it's very difficult for me to go do a television show on now that some of the lakes that I, that were bread and butter lakes that I were, were, you know, you know, just relied on it. It could have been to a disease going through the fishery or, you know, a particular lake not being stocked anymore and no natural reproduction changing or just fishing pressure. And then just this whole natural cycle. I've seen the same thing happen with, with certain lures get hot. You know, everybody's looking for that silver bullet in, in, a, in a lure get hot and everybody fishes it and the, all the fish succumb to it. And then that cycle kind of comes down again, kind of a, it's fun to ride the wave up, but it's not very fun going down on that wave. I'll tell you that much. But, you know, to me, I think the other thing that some of the biggest changes I've seen is that, you know, there are right now, there are just many, many more really good musky fishermen, you know, the, you know, the electronics in the equipment have just made it and, you know, and of course the, you know, the, the whole social media or really, it's, it's really more the whole internet where you have the ability to, you know, look at a magazine or look at stuff online or watch videos or, um, you know, exchange ideas and you can, you can get up this, the learning curve a lot faster. And, and so with the ability to learn a lot faster and watch on TV and, and watch online, you can, you can learn how to do stuff. You can get the equipment and you've got great equipment and you have great electronics that can where you can share spots and information and that has been a big big change where you know I remember starting out and there weren't a lot of people that knew much about the fish or there weren't a lot of people that were on you know different lakes and now I run into more and more people that aren't just on their musky fishing but they really know what's going on and it's you know it's exciting and it's fun and and I've always wanted to kind of grow the sport and, you know, I'm certainly not one to say, oh, that's a negative because I think it's a positive. And I, you know, I think that the more people that musky fish, the greater ability we have to get more musky lakes and get more people into it. You know, if we kind of back in our shell and don't want people doing it, well, you know what? The DNR is not going to stock more fish. They're not going to do more to promote musky fishing. And, you know, it, it, and I don't want it to go back to the 80s. Hands
1: down, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that, uh, You know, you hit it on the head, really, Jim. I mean, the more there are in fishermen, the more pressure that puts on the DNRs. And uh, we definitely need to keep this growing and expanding. Um, I think some of the biggest changes in my mind, um, because I I fished, I don't even know how many years now. (laughs) Maybe not quite as long as you, but I've, I've been in it a long time. And one of the biggest changes for me was map cards when we could put in a map card uh, for $150, go buy a map card, throw it in your GPS, and all the spots that took me years and years to learn, and maybe even have waypoints on those spots, um, all of a sudden that was at your fingertips for $150. Okay, so time on the water, don't get me wrong, it's still important, but at least you can have that at your fingertips immediately the second part is you know we've talked about it on pretty much every podcast but you know with side imaging being what it is today has been huge uh, the electronics side has just become completely bizarre actually so you know the advancements are are very incredible
2: yeah i mean i think i, I think you're totally right brad i mean i i you know, you just think about the ability to pull up. I mean, the navigating to and from a spot used to be a challenge or finding a mid-lake hump, you know, or finding the upwind side of a mid-lake hump or an extension was very difficult. And now anybody can do it. And, you know, you can take that, you know, you, you get, save waypoints where you catch fish or see fish or where those particular sweet spots are or save a plot trail as you're fishing an area. And you could give that chip, that information to your buddy, and he could pull up to the lake and do the same thing. And it's, it's great, but it's also dangerous, you know,
1: (laughs) it's, it's really, it's a pretty wild deal. So if you were to pick, um, you know, you've been all over the place, Jim. And, you know, you kind of mentioned that muskies are pretty much everywhere at this point. If you really look at it, I mean, you can go from New Mexico to Utah to Colorado to West Virginia. I mean, they're everywhere. And um, I think, you know, you kind of touched on that, that that's been a major change over the years that that you've musky fished and the interest has kind of followed suit with uh, nationwide, really. Um, I, I wonder where that's going to go. I mean, what, what are some of the coolest places that you uh,
2: you've been able to fish? Yeah. You know, I mean, heck, you know, this spring I was in Virginia and I was musky fishing the new river with Ken trail. And that was really cool. You know, we were in a jet boat, you're zipping down this shallow river and, you know, it's big giant bluffs and, you know, you're kind of like, you know, mountains. You're like, what the heck? It is so foreign to everything else that we historically musky fish. Those of us who are in the Midwest or Northeast, it just looks so different. And that was kind of very fun you know um doing that you know I've been to a lot of different remote places in you know in Canada that uh you know all throughout you know Ontario Eastern that are that are very unique and and been fun and you know and I also think fishing lakes like I remember fishing Lake Shelbyville in Illinois for one of the first times and the lake you know has no weeds it looked like the moon you know, because with all the rocks that were all there and it was very different and it was very cool. So, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I still have a big affinity for Northern Wisconsin waters because there's so many of them that are so close together, but you know, there's a lot of great Minnesota lakes. I love to fish and, and places. So, you know, I mean, I've checked out the lakes in New Mexico. I've been there and seen that. I've seen the Tiger lakes in Colorado that look like they're just a lake in the middle of a suburb, you know, one of them, you know, it was just crazy. So they all are very unique in, in many ways. And there's lots of places that have muskies that don't look anything like some of the Midwestern waters that many of us grew up to fish. That's what I would say,
0: tell you. It's kind of funny that you mentioned Shelbyville that when you were talking about the rise and fall of muskie lakes, that was the one lake I had right in my head was Shelbyville. Um, I remember that thing used to be all the rage probably about 14, 15 years ago. And rumor has it it's kind of come back. Is there any truth to that a little bit? Because I that that lake used to be amazing, from what I understand, and I'm pretty sure that you filmed a couple shows there, at least a show.
2: Yeah, yeah, I used to film a show there every spring. It was kind of an automatic. I mean, I could actually drive there, film a show for the day, you know, catch four to seven fish in a day, and then I would drive to. Lake Kincaid down south and spend, you know, two days there and catch another four to seven muskies and come home. It was just automatic. I can't do that anymore <laughs> on there unless conditions are perfect. But, you know, Shelbyville has not come back to what it was. Um, yeah, still, they've been stocking it quite a bit. And uh, I was speaking with one of the uh, uh, science bio, fisheries biologists and, and what they found out is that what they really need to do is stock the larger fish, these 18 to 24 inch fish, and those seem to be surviving better. So um they did have some kind of disease go through there and impacted some of the fish, plus a bunch of high a couple on top of a couple of real high water flood years. A lot of a lot of fish got washed out through the dam below the dam because they had to open up the gates for a long period of time. So it was kind of a perfect storm, unfortunately, that impacted that lake and it hasn't come back. But I think it will, you know. You know, it's interesting that in talking to some of these fisheries agencies that and some of these fisheries that were like really good and crazy and they've kind of settled down a little bit and they're still stocking them, but they're not getting the results they want. I think all of a sudden they're finding out when they stock these larger 18 to 24 inchers that they're getting a bigger bang for the buck and they're seeing that impact. And I don't know if that's part of this cycle, but I really imagine that that's going to be kind of the trend Um, on some of these lakes where stocking fewer, but larger ones is going to help, you know, bring some of these lakes back.
0: Right. Well, speaking of cycles, let's talk one thing about a cycle of a lake that obviously is super hot right now. St. Clair, you were out there recently. Um, you were out there, I think probably a couple days before we were out there and, that lake right there is one of those. Do you ever like I I don't ever see that one falling off. Obviously everything nothing stays as it is. Is that one of those lakes you think could be actually like immune from having that that crash like you see on a lot of those hot lakes?
2: Yeah, I think that's one of them that I do. I think, you know, I think St. Clair is one of those that was kind of, you know, it it's it's been good forever. <laughs> you know, and that and that I remember probably 18 years ago, before I had my TV show, going out there fishing muskies with a couple friends of mine. that were charred boat captains and catching a bunch of muskies. And, you know, you go back. To the you know all you know the homer leblanc days where they caught lots and lots of fish and and i think that when the vhs you know went through there they you know it, it kind of resulted in a little bit lower population that then started to climb but the fish were heavier and larger and fatter you know those fish historically used to be skinny long and skinny you know you'd get a 50 incher that weighed 26 to 27 pounds and now they're much much heavier obviously you get, you've all seen them and I think that the fact that that lake is such a shallow, fertile lake, it has phenomenal spawning areas, you know, it recirculates like a new, it basically, you know, it re- and all the water coming out of the St. Clair river and going into tri- that the whole Lake St. Clair turns over basically, you know, every seven days or seven to 10 days. So you have fresh water coming in, you have huge f- food source, you have shallow fertile areas for spawning and, And plus this genetics and a long history of having muskies, I think it's going to be good for a long, long time. And, um, you know, and plus the lake protects itself. You know, when it gets, you know how it is, if it gets windy out there, it's pretty rough to fish. And if it gets windy and muddy, it protects itself at times. I mean, for all the days guys can say the trollers that they caught 15 or 20 fish in a day, there's days where they catch one or two as well.
0: And sometimes none. For sure. We experienced that when we were out there. We had day one, we got one fish. We had like nine bites. Got one fish but then day two we got nine fish and 10 bites so like you said you kind of get that yin and yang out there i've heard with the higher water it can be you know it's a little more inconsistent these days than what it had been say even three years ago and it's all cyclical it'll it'll come back eventually when the water starts level starts to drop again um so since we're on st Clair and we're talking about you know stuff from now how's the filming season going so far where have you been and how's it how's it been you know,
2: it, it, it's, you know, it started off, I mean, it's down in Virginia. I started down in Virginia and that was great, you know, fishing the new, new and James river. We caught a bunch of fish, lost a bunch of fish, which seems to be a theme for me this year, which I'm trying to keep trying to get that out of my boat, but it keeps following me around, but I'll, I'll get over that, uh, you know, how it goes, but, um, uh, so, you know, that was good. And then, you know, this inconsistent weather, yeah, I, I filmed over on Lake Webster in Indiana and that was really tough. I I filmed on the Fox chain earlier in the spring and that was tough. This cold spring with the unstable weather was difficult, but you know, then, you know, went to St. Clair and I felt like literally the day before we got there, I felt like summer arrived and we had a lot of hot, warm, stable weather and we filmed two great shows out there, caught a bunch of muskies trolling. And, um, and then I was, uh, you know, then I was just up in Lake of the Woods, and you know we filmed for filmed two really good shows up there um that was a that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was you know we had really good stable weather early in the week and you know, and then as a bunch of storms came through and kind of impacted like they always do but um, but yeah, it's good. I feel pretty, pretty good about what's going on now. I feel like we're now that things are much more stable and, you know, even all throughout some of the Canadian lakes, I, I'm pretty excited about some, I'm, you know, I've got a few more Canadian shoots coming up. I'm going to, you know, fish Green Bay. I'm going to, you know, fish some of the t- Minnesota Twin Cities lakes. I'm going to go back to Indiana. You know, I've got, a, you know, fish Northern Wisconsin. I've got a lot of shoots planned and I'm pretty excited for the rest of the summer, you know, and then the fall.
0: So with all your travels, is is the TV show like is that your full time, I'd say, occupation at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I mean I spend all my time, you know, most of my time doing that. That's my that's kind of my passion for doing that. And uh, you know, musky wise it's what I just really love to do and you know, I enjoy it. Other than the driving, you know, I really don't like the driving to the lake all the time. You know, that's the you know, like going up to Lake of the Woods that for me it was like about a 13 or 13 and a half hour drive by myself that was kind of rough you know <laughs> but other, other than that once i'm there i'm good you know
0: i can certainly understand that we've i've done my fair share of driving around this year I, I haven't i don't put on as many miles as you but i've been to st Clair. i've been in northern wisconsin a bunch of times i've been over to minnesota a few different times and i i agree with you Everything's fun about it except for all the all the time on the road yeah
1: let's shift gears here um jim i i got a question for you because You've fished some different waters that um, have had zebra mussels in for many, many years. Um, how do you think that's affected our waters? Um, I know even on my home waters here in Minnesota, you know, the zebra mussels, have, they've done their damage and, and cleaned up the water, I mean, to a point where I've always fished clear water. But, man, oh, man, I mean, we're talking ultra clear now
2: at this point. Um, what do you think that's done to fishing? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it, it doesn't, you know, it really, it, 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 it has a couple impacts, you know, I mean, the, the short term impact is that it, 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 you know, gets, makes the water super clear. So it makes our, makes us as anglers, it makes it much more difficult. And some of those things and where the fish don't do what they did years before, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can see that in some of the lakes that you may catch them on some of the spots, you know, but it may be just needs, Perfect cloudy conditions, or night fishing, or something else to get them. In other areas, they you know they move may move deeper or in just totally different areas uh, you know from that. The other thing it does is those zebra mussels, you know, that it it, it it kind of impacts the whole life cycle, the plankton cycle, and what goes on. And so it can have a negative impact on some bait fish populations, and that can be a trickle down thing that long term can impact. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, other bait fish. It can impact perch populations. It can impact Cisco populations, which, long term, can have impact on muskie populations. From there, so um, from that, where you you know, you just have bait fish populations decreasing with the presence of them in some in some lakes. Not all of them, but you sometimes do. So. Um, you know, I see that, but the biggest thing for me, it's, it's like you, it's, it's figuring out on these lakes. I need to fish it when it's windy. I need to fish under low light conditions. Sometimes I got to fish them. You know these fish pull off, and these secondary break lines, or you know where you're out in, you know, 18, 25, 30 foot of water, and if there's no cover, then it's a becomes kind of a trolling game, or an open water trolling game, or an open water casting thing, and and then those fish are only susceptible in certain times of year. So, you know, I, you know, I'm not a big fan actually of zebra mussels. I don't like them. <laughs>
1: yeah it's it's been a wild ride i mean if you think of all the years of fishing and i'm sure you've dealt with it as well you know milfoil was was the evasive species and we got to really watch for milfoil and honestly i don't think that milfoil had as huge of effect as maybe the zebra mussel does but um then it became the zebra mussel and and now we're dealing with that and now i'm hearing about the spiny water flea and uh and in some of the other bigger bodies of water, the goby has become a big key too. But you know, it's amazing to me that Mother Nature seems to always protect herself, and uh, the fish somehow seem to rebound. Um, are you seeing the the spiny water flea as being a, a possible threat as well?
2: Yeah, I've seen that in some waters. I remember on Lake Michigan, Lake uh, Nipissing. And they have these spiny water fleas, and that's and they're, and they're attributing to that to impacting you know perch and walleye populations out there from it. But I, I remember tr- distinctly trolling in the fall, and and I've got this kind of like this you know this plastic kind of weed catcher I put above my leaders, and and I remember like having these these water fleas just loaded on this weed catcher just like crazy loaded it, you know for a few years in a row and it's crazy how that happens but mother nature does correct itself on those things you know these things tend to cycle and peak and you know it's kind of like any other invasives like putting a new predator I mean heck I've seen it on Lake of the Woods where you know when those rusty crayfish came in they eliminated lots of like all kinds of vegetation and although the his the, the typical you know green cabbage that we're used to seeing growing in the deeper water is not rebounding and may never will but now we're seeing that that broadly for tobacco cabbage coming back you know stronger and stronger every year and the crayfish population is dipping down a little bit and you're seeing it so you know it it, it is great that mother nature corrects it that way but um You know, it's just these invasive species, it's really important to make sure you drain your live wells and do all that because as musky fishermen or anglers, we are very nomadic. We go to lots of different places and um, more so than a lot of other anglers. You know, we travel all across the country and think of all three of us, we go to lots of places and and that, you know, it's important. You don't, you're not a carrier of that stuff, if you will.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, we got to be cautious, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I was just curious. You know, I, I know that the spiny water flea supposedly there's like zero. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, zero nutritional value for uh, for the perch or for whatever uh, for whatever bait fish are actually eating them. Um, and basically, they think they're full and they're basically just starving to death. Um, is is that what the real understanding is?
2: You know, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what they do, you know, how the impact, I mean, that very well could be, I I don't know. I do know that, you know, all I do know is that it's causing a lot of the, some of the smaller, young of the year population, you know, of different species to not, you know, not propagate as much. So they, you know, whether, whether it's they're eating them or they're out competing. Other zooplankton for food, and then those, you know, and the young of the year, you know, minnows, whether it be perch or walleye or other need those to survive, they, they don't have them and that cause crashes. All I know is it definitely is impact, impacts some of the perch and walleye populations on a lot of lakes uh, when they're getting in. And then that has that ripple effect on you know, on muskies, you know, it, it, you know, you first notice that in these lower level trophic species, right? The, the, the prey species that's, and then ultimately hits the predators, you know, but it's, it's the way it all goes.
1: Right. Right. So you, you've kind of, your whole, um, your whole world has kind of changed a little bit with leaving muskie hunter magazine and selling. Um, so the TV show is the just at this point, correct?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, we've got the television show, and you know, I'm I'm trying, I'm in, you know, doing more on social media and with YouTube. But yeah, the TV show's there. I mean, you know, Greg and Tony have got the magazine, and they're doing a great job. They made some cool changes to it, and uh, you know, and I, you know, I help them out whenever I can, and and you know, I know Steve Hiding's still involved doing all the layout stuff and everything. So it's it's in good hands, and and, and going fine. And you know, I just it's like anything else. You know, I, I was involved with, you know, I was felt like I was being spread so thin on so many. things. And and uh, and, you know, with with media is just constantly changing with all the social media, electronic media, all that, that it was, you know, I just I my efforts were being put more in towards some of the television and social media. And that's kind of where my focus is now.
1: Really cool. But you're still doing some schools, too. So I know that you just came back from Canada. You had a school up there. You had a school in northern Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken, um, just recently as well.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I really enjoy that because I when we do the school in Wisconsin, it's up in St. Germain, Wisconsin. It's a weekend in early June, you know, our University of ESOX, as we call it. I mean, we 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 have like we can bring like 26 people as the most we can come to the schools. And that one's always full. And more than half those people or a minimum of half. Those people have never caught a muskie before when they come to the school. So and, and this year we had people from eight different states that were represented. So it's kind of cool when you get people coming from all over the country, um, that are there to try to learn how to catch a muskie and all the techniques. So that's really fun. And then, um, and we, you know, that was a, that was a blast. And then we had one on Lake of the Woods last week and, uh, and that, and that, we get more people have caught muskies. But people are usually in either a they want to they want to fish Lake of the Woods because they've never been it before, or b they want to catch a bigger fish. They've been fishing for a while, and they want to catch a big one. And coming to can going to Canada is a great place to catch a big one, you know. And then the third part, people really like kind of being in that group setting where you're sharing information and you don't feel you know. Some people come into place like Lake of the Woods for the first time and come into a camp where there's a lot of musky guys. They don't, they may feel like, okay, I can't ask this, but what can I ask? What can I not ask? I'm not familiar with this spot. Are people going to be truthful? So, you know, it's a little intimidating. So when you come to a school like this, you can kind of get up the learning curve. We share a lot of information. We talk about techniques. We, you know, have some great classes on how to figure eight and find spots and pattern fish. And, you know, we share all our data and we make sure everybody catches fish. So it really is a great way to kind of propagate the sport.
1: So, can you tell, share a little bit more in depth, Jim? Uh, how many days are these
2: classes, and uh, what what's the typical day? Yeah, so so like the one in you know the one in Vilas County, the three day one is a pretty classroom intensive. Like we start Saturday, I think Friday at like you know one o'clock, and we have classes from one till five and they are they cover initially they're in the classroom on you know you know what are the you know we cover fundamentals on you know with equipment we cover stuff on you know the different lakes to fish. You know clear water, stained water, dark water, rivers. You know the, the typical spots you would fish and why they're there. And then we do some dockside stuff on how to work all the major lure groups we'll use in the spring. You know, and then we have dinner. We go fishing Friday night, and then Saturday we get everybody up really early, like six, and we have classes from like six to late in the morning, and then we fish all day till about six at night, and then we come back and we have some more classes on boat control and using electronics and. You know why we keep a musky log and how you can use all the statistics to predict musky behavior. Um, And then Sunday we get up and we fish till about one and wrap it up. And so it's a pretty fast weekend that goes by um, from that. And but the Canada schools are a little different. Where we start them on Saturday and then around two in the afternoon, and we have about four hours of classroom instruction that covers things on you know all over the different types of spots to fish on lake of the woods and some of the equipment and how to landing and release how to handle those big fish when you do get them and we want to make sure everybody understands you know all the fundamentals of how how to look at the map and pick spots and how to pattern these fish and think on the water when you're doing it and then we fish saturday night and then the rest of the week basically is We get everybody in the morning for breakfast, and while they're having breakfast, we go over the conditions and what we think will happen, and then we go fish till about 4 in the afternoon, and then we have dinner, and we go ask everyone at the table, what did you catch? What did you catch them on to kind of see the patterns that develop? you know is it a lure color is it a type of structure you know are they rocks are they weeds all that stuff and then um so we cover all that and then we go go back and you know have a seminar maybe that night and then we go back out fishing we fish till about 10 come in share stories get up and seven o'clock breakfast and do it again so it's a combination of seminars sharing information fishing and you know it's just a great week
1: well the sharing of the information is huge i mean uh you know, it's so amazing how tight-lipped this community community can be. Um, so, you know, if if people are networking like that, truly, truly cuts the learning curve like instantly.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, we end up people are sharing, and you know, we have a map. You know, and we, people are invited. They want to put pins on a map to share their data. And so people do. And so people walk away with, a, you know, a hundred musky spots, you know, when they're there fishing Lake of the Woods and, you know, we log every single fish, whether it's, you know, 38 inches or 58 inches. Oh, they've never gone a 58 inch up there, but you know what I'm saying? We, we log them all and, you know, for, you know, sky conditions, wind conditions, water temperature, lure, time of day, and we can show people how, you know, you can look at the moon, you know, the daily moonrise, moonset, or moon underfoot, and how that impacts the behavior. Well, you'll see, hey, there's five, the moon's under your feet at. 115 and look, there were six muskies caught within a half hour of that today. And you can see that every every day with those kind of things. So people can learn how to predict when those muskies may be active, you know, and uh, and 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 you can see how important the figure eight is. I mean heck we had like you know sixty percent or seventy percent of the muskies on our Lake of the Wood school get caught on a figure eight and Brad and Harriet Carey, they get caught on a cowgirl on a figure eight too is <laughs> a big, big thing that goes on. I'll tell you that much. So. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so if somebody
1: was to, uh, you know, be interested in, in joining one of these classes, how do they get in touch with you for that, Jim?
2: Yeah. You know, we have our, you know, you could go to muskyhunter.com or, you know, if you just type in university of ESOX, ESOX, it will come up and we've got a Facebook site too. But, you know, if you just Google university socks or you go to muskiehunter.com, you'll find it. And all the information is there, you know, we're going to do our same two schools again next year. And, uh, you know, it's a, if, you know, it's a great way, you know, to, to really, really learn about muskies and, you know, and, and we've got a lot of people that have been to those schools and within a few years, I mean, they are, there on it you see them catching lots and lots of fish you know that i run into them on lakes and different locations and you know they're just dangerous musky anglers after
1: <laughs> a couple of years after that i'll tell you well that's awesome stuff and it's cool to hear that they're coming from multiple states as well you know i mean uh, it's spreading. It's a disease
2: that's spreading. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's, it's a good one. You know, it really, really is. Yeah. It is fun to see people coming from, you know, we had people from Texas, you know, from, we're getting people from, you know, different out East and down South. And you know, the, the fact that they're coming from, you know, they're hearing the word from different areas and, you know, in a lot of these fringe areas, I call them, there isn't as much musky knowledge. You know, you might have one or two really good musky guides in those areas, but you don't have a musky shop. You can go talk to people about, you know, you can't go to musky sports shows and do it and you know you're just left watching what you can you know via the internet or whatever trying to find it and it's just not the same. Jim do you plan on adding any more schools now? You know, we've been talking about it and, and thinking about thinking about doing that. I, you know, I, you know, Steve Hiding, I've had that conversation and, and, and I think we, I think we might, you know, I, I think we're, we're just trying to, you know, it's, it's one of those trying to figure out the right place and the right time. Um, you know, we used to do a fall school and that, that covered some of more of the live bait and the trolling aspects. So we might do that again. Um, because we've had a lot of requests for that. So we're just trying to figure out what's the best location for that. And, uh, so I'm open for suggestions and, uh, you know, people can certainly, you know, email me or, or, or reach out to me on, you know, on, on social media, whatever, and find me and pretty easy to find. And, you know, I'm certainly open to ideas. It's good stuff. What do you got going on, Jeff?
0: I was just going to ask him, uh, I was just going to go on moon phases. So Jim, you talked about moon phases and how you guys charted at these schools, one thing, I think a bunch of anglers that I've talked to this year, myself included, is we found that there, there are definite windows on the water, but the moon isn't necessarily having having as much impact this year. Is that something that you guys have seen too, or is that just something that we've seen? Yeah, no,
2: it is. And I think it's, you know, my mantra has always been, you know, I mean, I, I gonna mean, follow the moon, but weather always trumps moon, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, and, and and you're right. I mean, some years, it, you know, it's, it, you know, whether, and I it, again, you know, you hate to make excuses, but sometimes it's, you know, the unstable weather goes, you know, there's this term that um, a friend of mine that, you know, uses, he calls it biometrics. You know, these are all the factors that make, you know, muskies active or inactive, you know, and the moon can be one of them, the sun can be another one, the wind, and, you you know, I, I think all these factors come in and some years the moon has greater influence than others. I mean, I, you know, I would say that, you know, when I was, at, you know, when we were at Lake of the Woods, you know, the um, the, the moon underfoot, um, you know, had a pretty strong influence, you know, during that, you know, during the week we were there. But the moon set in the evening did not have, I mean, the moon rise rather, because we were on the full moon, did not have the influence I thought it was going to have. You know, and, and and so, you know, it, and in other years I've seen it be vice versa, or other trips have been vice versa. I think the key thing I tell people is that, you know, when you have a situation where you're going to have a sunrise and a moon, you know, you know, a sunset and a moon rise rather, or, you know, you're going to have just the opposite. You know, when you have that kind of situation, you can kind of say, you know what, the fish, the muskies are more likely to be active then. So maybe I can fish a little faster. I'm going to go back to a spot where I saw a big one, you know, where, you you know, you can, you can take that approach to them and and try to, you know, catch more fish during that time rather than fishing really slow and, and going at it. But, you know, it's, it's still, you know, they're muskies. And every time we think we know about this fish, they just slap you in the face with their tail and said, sorry, maybe next year, you know, and, uh, but, you know, it's why we fish for them. You know, I, you know, it really, really is. I mean, although, you know, I mean, we don't fish for bass really, you know, so.
0: The funny part about it is if, if you talk to a new muskie angler, like if somebody's listening to this podcast and they're a new muskie angler, they got to think these things are the most impossible things to catch. You know, you're talking moon phases, wind, sun, you know, waves, all sorts of different conditions. And it's, it's amazing sometimes that, they, that we can even catch any of them.
2: Yeah, and it's not, yeah exactly. And, and I certainly don't want people to think that because my other mission has been to tell people that this is not the fish of 10,000 cast. You know, fishing for muskies is not rocket science. In fact, you know, using these moon things, phases stuff actually makes it easier, you know, than some other fish. I mean, I don't have walleyes and bass. When I used to fish walleye tournaments, I never saw them respond like the Muskies have to a moonrise or a moonset or something like that, you know? And to help me catch them or figure out if I'm sitting at home and working in the morning and, you know, and I'm like, Hey, the moon's going to rise at, you know, at at five o'clock tonight. Well, I don't have to, maybe I don't have to go out till later. I mean, I would never do that when I was wallowing bass fishing, but musky fishing, I I could think about things and plan my day like that. So it doesn't have to be that hard. I mean, there's lots of places you can go and when the fish are biting, you know, you can catch four or five muskies, you know, particularly these, you know, the lakes with lots of numbers. It's they exist all throughout the country and you can do
1: it. Well, there's no, there's no doubt um, that these phases actually uh, make changes in our in our muskies. But you know, they can be related to the bass. They can be related to the walleye. I can even relate them to sitting in a bow stand. You know, hunting white tail bucks. So it's definitely something that you have to key in on. Make the best use of your time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, and, and that's it, you know, if you can, if you can just, like I said, you can use some of that knowledge, look at the weather, look at the hinges just to kind of, you know, think about your day, plan your day and what you may do and, and approach your day. You know, if the, like you tell people, if if there's going to be some kind of moon activity at lunchtime, you don't need to go in for lunch, fish another hour, go in after that. It could make or break your day. You know, I mean, it could be the, on a tough day, it might be the one fish that follows your lure and nips your cowgirl and the figure eight that you hopefully catch and don't lose, you know. <laughs> and but that could be it. That could be your one opportunity on a really really tough day. And uh, you know, likewise, so could sunset on a day like that. You know. So.
0: So since I've heard you mention cowgirls a couple times, I guess one thing I want one thing I thought about with with all the experience that you've had on the water, you've obviously seen a different array of baits come through. Hot, you know, this bait will be hot. That bait will be hot. And the in inevitably nothing stays hot forever it was a cowgirl and let's say a bulldog at the same time were those two baits that when you first saw them you thought there's just no way a muskie's gonna eat these well
2: i you know the the bulldog at first i was like yeah i thought that initially they weren't but the cowgirl you know it was a uh you know an inline spinner with bigger blades and you know and in and i was hearing some of the rumors of it back when you know, when it was first getting going and, you know, when I was fortunate to have Brad and Carrie, you know, give me a couple of them to try, you know, and, you know, literally. And of course, but also, and I was back in the day when they, when they first came out, I was fishing Lake Vermilion and there weren't a lot of people on them. So, so it was kind of, that kind of coincided as a perfect storm for me and a lake that had a big bucktail bite. So it didn't take me long to understand how effective they would be and, you know, going. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, the, some of those baits initially, like, I don't know if it's going to work, but You know, they certainly do, you know, and, uh, and, you know, and they still do, you know, I mean, you know, do some lakes, they don't respond to them. Like, you know, is it, is it not where they're basically not committing suicide on them? Yeah. They adapt to them just like anything else. Just like introducing muskies into a lake, it kind of peaks and goes down the same thing. I mean, maybe it's not, they're not, you know, on on some lakes, they're not going, you know, not that people see them a lot. They're not, you know, not catching as many, but Hey, I was at Lake of the Woods last week, and I had all kinds of people. As I drove up to launch my boat, everybody was like, Jim, you're not going to catch them on the cowgirls this year. Not going to happen. And, you know, I literally went to the first spot and had a fish just come flying around. And, of course, I lost him on a figure eight. But, you know, um, the very first spot, I'm like, I guess, you know, I'm going to catch. And we did. We caught, you know, of the 87, you know, we we caught like 60 of them on cowgirls. So, you know, it's just the way it is. They bite
0: them. Yeah, I was gonna say because as things change, one thing that seems to be constant is if people watch your show, you it seems like you catch quite a few muskies on them still every single season. I'd say it's probably still one of your best baits that you use. I would imagine.
2: Well, I I, I, w- I tell people that you know. I mean, if I'm fishing a water with a lot of smaller fish, I'm mean, gonna catch them on showgirls. I catch them on juniors and other stuff. You know, but you know when I'm fishing, when I'm fishing big fish waters, if I've got conditions that are warm. And, you know, if they're overcast, you know, they're favorable for muskies being active. Someone in the boat is throwing a cowgirl. That's just the way it's going to be because I don't care almost anywhere you're at, even in northern Wisconsin, wherever. If you're, if you're in waters where you've got some quality muskies and you've got favorable conditions, that bait is going to get them to bite. You know, they're going to eat it, you know. And if not, they're going to they're follow it and they're going to show you where they live. And then it's all about hunting them down and getting them to bite at a different time how can I start
1: talking after all that?
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh,
2: That was a good advertisement. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be. It's just true. You know, if you watch the show, you see it, you know, I
0: mean, exactly. That's I watch your show. I see it. You know, I'm like, man, he still catches a lot of fish on cowgirls. Those things, you know, you know, it is everybody's looking for the newest flashy things. There's people that probably are new to muskies that still think, you know, that maybe haven't even tried a cowgirl because they, they haven't heard of it because it's old school, essentially, because it's been around for a long time, but it's still proven and effective. It's the same with the bulldog, you know. um, Everybody's looking for new baits, flashy baits, whereas these baits are out there, available in many, many places, and they still catch tons and tons of fish.
2: Hundred percent, you know. I mean I would say that, you know, I tell people, I go if if they're like, you know, because some people are like, oh, you know, that car goes too much, and you know, and the one thing that I tell people that is that, you know, the the junior, the number nine bladed bait, that. You know, that, that bait could be the, you know, long-term forever could end up being the best all around, you know, for lots of people, because, you know, I see it so often where, let's say they're not going to a cow, go, you drop down to a nine and they bite it, you know, much so, more so that than let's say dropping down to a showgirl all the time. And, and, you know, some situation it's all different, but you know, I see that happen a lot, but yeah, I mean, these, these baits all work. I mean, the bulldogs the same way. I mean, I catch lots of fish on a bulldog and, you know, look at the, look at the pro musky tournament trail. I think more fish get caught on a bulldog than any other, all the other lures combined. And, you know, those turn those fish are caught, you know, seven to three during banker's hours with lots of boats on the same spots and, that lure keeps triggering strikes and pressured waters. It's amazing.
0: Well, since you speak of seven to three bankers hours, I mean, you typically aren't shooting a lot of night shows. Do you got anything out there for like a new muskie angler? Um, what's a, what's a good way for them to just get started trying to find their first muskie. Do you have any information that could help them just try to catch them, try to catch one?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I tell people the same thing. I say, number one, you got a lake. That's got lots of them, you know, like, you know, for me in Northern Illinois, it's the fox chain. You know, there's lots of them in those lakes. So you need to fish a lake with lots. Don't fish a lake that's deep, clear, that has a few. You need to fish a lake with a lot of them. Usually they're stained, darker water. You can find out from a local muskie club. You can find it online. You can call your DNR. You know, where's a lake with a bunch of numbers of muskies? That's where you want to be. And then number two, I tell people if you're, you know, you don't have to go crazy with baits. You could take some of your big bass spinner baits or, you know, just buy, you know, go buy and you know, go buy a showgirl. Go buy you know a, a, a classic bulldog. You know, go buy a top raider. You know, just buy a handful of baits, You know, one top water, one minnow bait, one bucktail. You know, one jerk bait. You know, and that, and that's all you need to start. And then the other thing I said, when you go out there, just fish the edges of stuff. You know, muskies are creatures of the edge. And so, you know, don't get way up on the cover. Fish the edges. Those contacts between open water and deep water would be rocks, weeds. And, you know, more than likely you can be successful. And the last thing I tell people is to use speed. You know, don't be afraid to fish the baits faster than you would with bass and and walleyes and everything, and because muskies react to speed, you know. I think those
0: are all good tips.
1: Rocks versus weeds, Jim. <laughs> give what? me uh, give give me your favorite, and give me examples of when and why.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, you know. It, you know, when lakes have both rocks and weeds, it's kind of tough. You know, you got to fish them both, you know, from there. I mean, for me, I love fishing shallow rock humps, uh, you know, when I can't, you know, the mid-lake rock humps and different things. I really like those, particularly the really shallow ones, the kind that rip your motor off as long as you don't hit them. But that's a good thing. But um, I really like those shallow humps, particularly on uh, in stainwater lakes, um, you know, sometimes on sunny days, if I had to kind of compound those factors, I really like fishing those. Those are like some primo conditions, um, to, to fish some of those, those rocks, um, or flat, calm and cloudy conditions on those humps Or the other two, the two extremes that I really, really like. Um, and, uh, you know, heck, I am in mean, Lake Vermilion for, for years when I first started fishing, and it was just awesome doing that as an example, one that I used to fish a lot and, and catch them, um, you know, with weeds, I, you know, I, I, mean, I, for me, you know, I'm always a big weed edge guy. I love fishing. Yeah. I, my ideal thing of fishing big bars or points that have got, you know, big, deep green cabbage beds that are grow to like, you know, 12 to 15 foot of water. And I love fishing those big edges. Um, i there with some wind blowing in on them. You know, that's, that's kind of one of the things I love to do. Um, you know, I really enjoy fishing that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I fish a bulldog, but I'm still, again, going back old school, I catch a lot of fish fishing depth raiders along those edges. And I think part of the fact now is no one does that anymore. And I grew up doing it. Like a lot of people today grew up fishing bulldogs. You know, I grew up fishing, you know, a depth rater, and I still catch them on it.
1: So how are you fishing that? the depth rater when you're uh, fishing a weed edge.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know what I do is I, you know, I keep my boat off the edge and I throw up where I'm, I'm throwing my, my bait about a third of the cast or between a third and a half of the cast is over the weeds. And I keep my rod up high. And so where I'll make three or four cranks. The lip of the depth rater will make contact with the weed cover. I lower my rod tip a little bit to create slack and then I start cranking again, and, and I do that. It float the bait will float back up because that bait was designed. Booker designed that bait for fishing cabbage after dark. Truly, you know what I mean, and, and and during the day, but fishing around cabbage with that bill, the idea will go nose down into cabbage and back up. You know, and so then I'll crank a couple times. If I get hung up, I lower my rod tip again. Maybe I got to snap my rod tip to rip the cabbage free. And then I just kind of, as I come to the edge of the weeds, I lower my rod tip more and work it down the edge and finish up with the figure eight. So it takes a little bit to initially get used to finessing it where that first 30 year cast is over the weed cover where maybe you can only crank your reel one or two times until you make contact with the weeds initially. But if you drop your rod tip and jiggle it a little bit, it will float out and then you can crank two or three times. It'll make contact, pause it, let it jiggle out and do the same thing as you walk down that edge. And you'll notice as you get to the uh, progress to the edge of the weed bed, you can make more revolutions of your reel before you make contact with the cover. And it's pretty cool. Well, those fish will come up and grab the bait and a lot of that stuff. And I do it during the day. I've caught tons of them after dark. I mean, you know, that truly the depth rater is still my numb joint. Black joint of depth rater is still my number one night lure that I fish in all kinds of places where I go.
1: That's really cool. Um, you know, I think when people see crankbaits, they immediately think, uh, trolling and they can be utilized in casting so well. And, uh, you just proved that right there. So good stuff.
0: Well, it's like we say, you know, often Brad, I think we probably mentioned it before is like every bait's a tool. I think sometimes guys are, they're too apt to go run around and buy a whole bunch of new tools when they really should sit down sometimes and learn the tools that they have, find out what they, you know, find out how they fish, what works for them and how to util- utilize those tools to catch muskies. I mean, cause we've said it before, you could, like when muskies are active, you can throw to split anything and you can catch them. But there's certain times where it's the right tool for the job. And like Jim was just talking about, you know, certain times where a crankbait's the right tool for the job, whether you're casting or trolling.
2: Oh, that that is so right. I, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, whether it be a crankbait or a jerkbait or a bait or a bucktail, you know, you, you know, t- you know, I tell anglers, pick your favorites, you know, don't go chasing, you know, the pot of gold, you know, you know, for these bait, you know, for some other bait, it's, it's not, there's not a miracle lure, you know, if there's a jerk bait you like to fish, fish it, you know, learn everything about it and get a lot of confidence in it. And, you know, chances are someone, you know, if, if you like to fish, let's say a, a phantom jerk bait, you know, a glider, and you're good with it, someone's not going to come behind you with another, you know, a shum or some other glider and catch fish you know more you know you're both going to catch them you know because it's a similar style lure you just need to know how to use that tool and when to use it at the right time i mean it's you know we're all so many anglers are chasing those dream of a hot bait and as you said jeff it's it's really about understanding these tools and when to use it's the knowledge i mean knowledge is power and that's how you catch more
0: i couldn't agree more that's half the reason we're doing these podcasts right brad
2: Oh, for sure and then, then why do you got me on i don't know what that's all about
0: but. well we're looking for some knowledge brad and i are clearly yeah. aren't bringing it yeah right yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know about that yeah. uh the, the beauty of you jim is that the, the years of experience that you bring to the table and um you know <laughs> i don't care what anybody says time on the water is definitely number one in my opinion. And I agree with you. You know, you said it earlier that that weather trumps everything. And totally, for sure. And, and then it's about boat control. It's about presentation. It's about so many different things. But, you know, at the end of the day, time on the water cannot be beat.
2: Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. You know, I think that, you know, you you can read about it, you can watch it, you got to do it. And, you know, and, and I think the other thing that people too, it's, you know, that, you know, you, you kind of got to manage your time too. You know, I always say, you know, my mantra's has been like kind of fish hard and fish smart, that you got, you got to be smart about what you want to do. I mean, you know, some people just want to fish a billion hours, but you know, they know, let's say the evening is going to be really good. But by the time the evening rolls around, they're so exhausted. They can't, you know, they can't execute when it really, really matters, you know? So, you know, you got to pace yourself too. Hands down. There's no (laughs) doubt about that either.
1: Being prepared is a big key.
0: So one question I had for you, Jim was, um, you know, go like, let's say you move a fish. It's a nice fish, 45 plus bigger fish. Um, you move it, you don't get it to bite. It's lazy, whatever. Um, what's your, what's your plan of attack for like coming back on that fish? I know, you know, throughout the years watching your stuff, you've obviously know you're no stranger to big fish. Um, I'm sure you don't get them all to bite the first time around. What's, what's the plan of attack? when you're moving fish or you moved a fish, like how, how much time are you wasting before you're waiting before you come back on it? Or are you just waiting for a moon phase? What's like I said? What's the plan of attack on moving that fish or trying to catch it?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good question, you know. And you know, I certainly don't have all the answers um, from those because you know sometimes they're all different. Um, you know, but I, you know, I, 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 you know, I would say, like I said, if you've gone through and you can't get them to bite you know, with the figure eight or making a quick pitch cast or switching a lure back on the fish right away. You know, I, I try all that stuff usually in the first, you know, five, four or five casts after I see a fish. And then if I don't, then I keep moving on. And then, and then it really becomes okay. When to return. Right. And I like to get in, fish that fish for 10 or 15 minutes and get out. And, and I do it related to almost any excuse I can kind of think of sometimes, you know, like, okay, if the wind is out of the South and it switches to the West I don't care how far away I am. I'm gonna pick up, I'm gonna pull back to that spot, I'm gonna fish it for 10 minutes and get out. If it's sunny and then all of a sudden it gets cloudy, I pick up, I go back to the fish, fish it for 10 minutes and get out. Um, same thing with the moonrise, moonset, moon underfoot, you know, sunrise, I, I, all those are opportunities. They're all biometric triggers when that big fish might bite. Um, and so I, I use it as opportunity. I might go back to a big fish, three, four, or five times during the day, if he's, depending on how big he is, and also depending on on the lake I'm fishing, or, you know, if, if the lake doesn't have a lot of people on it that are fishing around there, or people don't know about that big fish, and I feel like I can rest them, yeah, I'll let them rest for an hour or so, or give them some time, and, and you know, that's the ideal scenario, you know, I mean, I think if you raise a fish in the afternoon, and if you don't have a big, you know, maybe you come back just an hour later and check on it, just to see, um particularly if the fish followed you know kind of with some aggressiveness meaning if he followed he went in the figure eight a couple of times didn't bite you might catch that fish in an hour you know if he if he came in he whipped around and flashed her at the bait and didn't catch him you'll definitely probably catch that fish in an hour you know or sooner you don't want anybody else to fish that spot you know, before you get back um but if he came in really slow and deep and didn't really commit to the figure eight, you're probably not gonna catch that fish in an hour. You're gonna need some other event. And that's where a moonrise, moonset weather change, or for me, one of the key times is what I call first dark. It's that, you know, the last spot you fish in a night, you, you pull up to the spot, and you lose sight of your topwater lure on the surface. Approaching the fish at that can that time is like money. You know, I've got lots of photos of my buddies holding giant fish and it is just black in the background um, from that. And, you know, you know, in the TV show, you don't see that a lot of it because a lot of it's a lot of that. Sometimes it's, it's the camera thing, you know, right? certain light conditions it can't fish in. But, you know, I've got some of those photos and some of that stuff you'll see. But, um, you know, it's certainly when there's a big fish, that's something I always try to do. And and then if we do show it on TV, if we catch one like that, it, it gets lit up pretty well where it looks brighter than it really is. You know.
1: So not to put you on the spot, Jim, but, um, what is your largest fish?
2: My longest, the largest one, the longest one I've caught is 58 inches long. And, uh, and that fish, I caught that one on the top water It probably weighed about, I don't know, 44, 45 pounds. I didn't weigh it. Um, I've got one that I caught that my heaviest fish weighed 53 pounds and that was a 56 incher. And had a 27 and a half inch girth. And I weighed that one because, you know, catching a 50 pounder was a big milestone, you know, and, you know, getting that first one. And we caught a few other since. So my heaviest one's a 53 pounder and my longest one's a 58 incher and, you know, and, uh, you know, I've caught some others in between.
1: It's pretty sweet. Those are big fish. Um, you know, I think that that 50 pound mark gets thrown around quite a bit. And uh,
2: yeah, that's a tough mark to hit. That's for sure. Oh yeah, you bet. I mean, and, and that's, that's why I weighed them, Brad. You know, I mean, it was one of those that, you know, I've been pretty fortunate to catch a lot of 40 pound muskies and catch some 45 pounders, but you know, years ago I had never broken that berry and that was one of my lifelong goals. Can you break that 50 pound mark, you know? And, uh, you know, when, when that fish went in the net and rolled over and I saw its belly, um, that was one of those, you're like, oh boy, that one's really fat, you know? So,
1: right. Right. Oh, that's incredible, Jim. So, if you were to pick one body of water, <laughs> the rest of your life to fish, what would it be?
2: Hmm, that's a tough one. You know, I, you know, it, you know, I, I, you know, I've got, I, you know, Lake of the Woods is probably one of those that's right up there. You know, that would have to be. Uh, you know, I, I like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that one. I think because it's just because it has you know, the combination of, you know, if you say, you know, okay, you can only fish one lake, right. This can in the combination of there are so many spots to fish, right. And, and there are so many muskies of so many different sizes. So, you know, you have action and you have big ones and, um, and then you can, you can replicate a pattern very, very well there. So, and it's beautiful. It is absolutely, you know, thousands of islands and it's just a gorgeous place to fish. So that would probably be my place, you know, hands down as I have the largest muskies across the board that I fish. No, um, you know, the great Lake stuff is, is, has they, you know, have larger muskies, but you know, it's, you know, the overall thing, if you're going to say, okay, this is where you got to be, you know, when you got to stay there, you know, that'd be great. Cause some of the great Lake stuff is feast or famine and that can be tough, but Lake of the woods is pretty consistent all year round.
1: I would have to agree with you. You know, I mean, it, it's beautiful there, and it does offer giant fish. And as long as I have the opportunity to catch a big fish, I'm pretty content. Um, I can catch 38 to 44 inches all day long and be happy. But just knowing that you have the potential of catching a 50, um, it, it's pretty cool to know that in the back of your mind.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you you know, as musky anglers, we all go through that cycle, right? You know, you want to catch your first musky, you want to catch your first 40 inch or then a 45. And then, you know, can you break that 50 inch barrier, you know, can you go? And yeah I think when you get up there, you get to some point where you're like, you know, it's pretty hard to not fish lakes unless they've got a 50 inch, you know, caliber fish in them sometimes, you know. But, uh, you know, it's just that's just the way we are.
1: I think a lot of it too, Jim, is that, uh, just being positive and, and knowing that having the confidence, fishing confident, not fishing angry. Um, (laughs) you know, when you fish angry, you don't fish right. You know, would you agree with that?
2: Yes, I do. It's just funny you say that. Yep. I agree. You know, you, you know, it's just, you know, you tend to force things and not let, you know, not let the conditions, the muskies kind of come to you, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you, people say that in sporting events, you know, yeah, you, you got to let the game, you know, in football or basketball, let the game kind of unfold in front of you. Same thing when you're musky fishing, you kind of got to let the day kind of unfold. What's the weather kind of like? How are the fish reacting today? Are they following my baits or not? You know, is that going to make me fish faster or slower? You know, what ta- and not be frustrated if you're not seeing them. You just got to dictate the fact that, you know, maybe they're telling me that maybe today I got to slow down
1: yeah no doubt, no doubt. Um, a lot of the waters that I fish, you have to go slow. And um, yeah. you know I, <laughs> one of the things that I always tell people when I'm guiding is, uh, you know, slow down, slow down, and, and people struggle with that. And so you know, I tell them this, you know, does the fat guy run to the fridge or does he watch? You know <laughs> And literally, I mean, that's what it's about sometimes. you know, some of those big lethargic fish, they crawl. They don't, they don't really want to expel any energy. So sometimes slower is better.
2: Yeah. And, and I think it's not just the retrieve. It's also, you know, kind of the boat control. You know, I, I was, Billy Sandy and I were talking about this this week up in lake of the woods. The last couple days days were there. We had a bunch of thunderstorms go through and the fish were acting a little squirrely. You know, they weren't following as often and they were, you know, coming up and you're catching a figure eight. They wanted a slower retrieve. And when you fish a lake like that, I think it happens to lots of anglers. When you have a lake where you know lots of spots. You keep thinking, well, if they're not on this spot, they're going to be on the next one or the one after that or the one after that or the one after that. And so your mind starts racing about, well, how many spots I want to get to and do that quickly. And so you tend to move your boat faster through the spot and you kind of don't give those fish time to react or show up. And so you got to slow yourself down and back off on the caffeine and monster. Yeah, no doubt. It can be tough. It can be really yeah. Tough. For me, it's a really hard thing. I ca- I have to catch myself sometime, you know, and uh, and remind myself of that as the day goes on. That you know, these fish. You know, this is not the day where we're going to boat a bunch of them. We're going to get a couple bites, and if we want to get a couple bites, we got to slow down and, and make it happen.
1: Right, right. Well, I I uh, I just know from past experience that uh, you know that Lake of the Woods thing. Generally speaking, though, speed really becomes a huge factor.
2: Yeah, no, it can be at times, you know. And uh, the good news is, it didn't have to be for my hands' sake. I didn't have to. We didn't have to crank super fast this time, which is good. So you
1: know. that's a positive. You're yeah, not, uh, yeah. Putting your hands in a big thing of ice water every night to get the swelling yeah. out.
2: Yeah, I know. I was thinking. I was thinking about that, you know, from there. But it's just. But it's just. It's one of those things that you really, you know, there. When I fish there, it just becomes. It just becomes. And and actually, it's not just there. It's so many waters I fish now that you know the whole figure eight thing and, and really focusing on that and not just doing a figure eight, but, you know, doing different maneuvers and all that is, it's becoming more and more important in all kinds of waters that I musky fish. And I can't believe how many places I've gone to and the people I fish have all told me, they've jinxed me because they always say, they go, you know, Jim, you can't catch them in a figure eight here. And it's in the minute that happened, it's like, okay, then the first one I catch is always in a figure eight, always in there. And
0: so, never say never.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly.
0: I'm just happy to hear that Carrie's still awake. It's getting kind of late. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, barely. I got up pretty early today.
0: Yeah. You, and me, both. Well, you got. I got. I pretty much hit all the bullet points I had on my notes here, Brad. You got anything else you want to ask Jim before we uh, ask him for a tip before we sign off?
1: Well, there's always stuff to talk to Jim about. I, uh, off the top of my head at this point, I can't think of anything, but. You know, I, maybe this, maybe, maybe we ask you this, Jim, where's, where's the future of, uh, of Jim go from here? You know, I'm, I'm intrigued, you know, your whole span of fishing career, it's been a wild ride for you. I'm sure. And, uh, you know, what, what's, uh, what's
2: next? What's the future for Jim? You know, I, I, I think I'm going to try to just you know I'm I'm going to continue to try to fish you know new waters and show people some new techniques you know is what I want to do and you know from that and try to keep getting more people into muskie fishing you know that's what I'm going to keep doing you know from there I mean I you know I'm you know I'm always looking for new waters to fish but I'm you know and. and but for me, it's going to kind of continue to kind of teach people how to do it. And I think that a lot of the new media, you know, so much of the new social media stuff, that's going to be more part of it that goes on besides the television and everything else. So I just got to kind of keep rolling with that. So, you know, but stick around and keep catching them, you know, keep looking for the next 50 inch or somewhere.
1: Exactly. That's that's the good news for everybody out there that, that is a musky fisherman to know that Jim Sarek is, going to keep pursuing and uh keep educating hopefully.
0: All right, Jim, we typically wrap up a show by asking for an actionable tip for either something you've seen personally help put more fish in the boat, just something that guys can use or think about next time they're on the water to maybe help them catch an, an, another fish or either their first another fish, bigger fish. Um is there something you guys can offer the listeners?
2: Yeah, here's here's one thing, you know, and it's just kind of coming off the heels of my Lake of the Woods trip that I watched a lot. So You know, we all talk about a figure eight and you got to do it. But I I think that that what really, really helps is understand is is preparing that transition from your cast into the figure eight and making a smooth transition. And what I do and the the tip I tell people is, let's say you're going to bring your lure in. You're going to make your first turn of your figure eight to the right. So you were going to bring your lure into the boat and you're going to turn, make that first turn to the right. If that's the case, as the lure comes toward, approaches the boat and gets about 20 feet away, start swinging your rod tip to the left in the opposite direction first. And when you do that, you, as you swing your rod tip to the left and then the lure comes to the boat and you then make that right turn, you end up initiating the turn much sooner away from the boat and you get the fish muskie behind it into the turn rather out away from the boat rather than at the boat so you won't be making a sharp l move right at boatside with the turn you're going to be making a gradual and larger first turn at boat side and you're going to catch a lot more muskies on the eight
0: beautiful well we certainly appreciate you having out coming out tonight to talk with with us jim if uh, people are interested in catching your TV show, what's, what's one way they can find your TV show? Um,
2: you can find it if you go to muskyhuntertv.com. You can find out all the information on where to get it. And you know it, the new episodes air January through March on Fox Sports North, on NBC Sports Chicago, and on CBS Sports Network nationally all throughout the U.S.
0: And if they're interested in joining you for a muskie school next season... How can they get in touch with you there?
2: Yeah, just University of ESOX, ESOX. You can't miss it.
0: All right. Well, you're listening to the Backlash Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook. Um, You can also listen to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now, but you can find it on iTunes. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, uh, Google Play. I think that pretty much covers most of them. You can email us if you have questions on it. You want to see a guest, you have, you know, want more information about us. You can email us at backlashpodcast at gmail.com. As far as me personally, I own a company called Team Rhino Outdoors. We sell most of the major manufacturers in the musky industry and we have both custom colors and we've been adding a bunch of standard colors this season. So if you're looking for something cool and unusual that most people don't have, we probably do. If you're looking for a black and orange bucktail or a black and nickel cowgirl you can find that or a black and orange bulldog or a black and nickel cowgirl you can find that with us also that'd be www.teamrhinooutdoors.com you can find us on facebook you can find us on instagram you can find us on twitter and you can also find us on youtube we put out new content uh every single sunday during the fishing season we generally start in june and we run until december brad Kerry, would you like to wrap up on musky mayhem tackle
1: for sure. You can reach us at uh, muskymayhemtackle.com as well as Instagram and Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, even if it's a question off a podcast or whatever, we're, we're here to answer them. And uh, I guess, you know, ultimately, I'd like to thank Jim Sarek for joining us tonight. And I think that uh, we brought the listeners a bunch of different stuff. So good stuff. I appreciate your time, Jim. I know you're a busy guy, and
2: uh, that's all I got. Excellent. Maybe next maybe next time we'll talk about colors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for for being colorblind, we could talk all kinds of colors,
2: right, Jim? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean that would be a really <laughs> difficult radio discussion. <laughs> It'd be fun though. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks again for coming out, Jim.
2: Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me. You know, appreciate it. You know. We'll do it again. Okay. Thanks. Have a good night. All, all right. right. I'll see you all later. Bye care. Bye.